So now we're talking about the Bible on trial. Uh, can we trust it? Now, we know the answer, yes. <laughs> but how do we articulate that? How do we answer that? To, how do we give an answer of the hope that's within us? And so that's what we want to talk about in this session, uh, the power and authority of Scripture. We've talked about uh, the idea of God's promises, three crucial promises. We've talked about the purpose of Scripture. Now we're talking about the power and the authority of Scripture. And basically in this session, we're going to put the Bible on trial. Uh, so I want you to imagine, if you will, we're going into a courtroom case. Uh, the Bible has claimed to be the Word of God. Can it pass that test? And so that's sort of where we're going to take it. We're going to look at uh, some thoughts here about understanding the Bible, why it's trustworthy. Frankly, if we can't trust the Scriptures, we need to find something else to do with our life. Amen. If there's no heaven, no hell. If it doesn't really matter how you live in this life, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. But if this is true, that changes everything. And we know it's true because we've been raised with it, many of us. But sometimes people who've never been, and, and our, our culture is becoming more and more post-biblically illiterate. It was sort of a rude awakening when I moved to California 24 years ago. I grew up in Georgia. Even if people don't go to church, they at least know the lingo. Uh, and, and often they would tell me they, they knew a pastor, they knew a church. They, they at least had something pull out of their back pocket. I'm a member of this church. I haven't been in 20 years, but I'm a member of that church. And they at least had a Judeo-Christian worldview. But I've knocked on doors at, in people in California and, and uh, asked them about their religion. They've told me I'm pagan. That's their religion. Uh, I'm Wiccan. I'm this. We've been called in the ministry, I hear Yes, Lord. Uh, and so we've got all these different, different things out there. It's post-biblically illiterate. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll be maybe sharing the gospel with somebody, and I've, I've tried to go back maybe to Genesis. and Let me tell you about Adam and Eve. And they go, I don't think I know them. Where do they live? <laughs> We're biblically illiterate in our society. And so when people are biblically illiterate and they come to our doors, they, they're not coming with the same paradigm about the scriptures that you and I were raised with. It, Today, I mean, we, we understand you put your hand in the Bible, so help me God. I mean, there was like a sacred moment. We're beyond that in much of our culture. So people who don't have that exposure, how do we help articulate to them that the Bible is credible, the Bible is trustworthy? So uh, as Pastor Andrew mentioned a moment ago, a little more technical here. Uh, the, the first two, a little more review. Now we're going to jump into some material that hopefully will cause us to think and to appreciate our Bible in a better way. So we're going to talk about understanding the evidence. Understand the evidence, and we're going to talk about uh, manuscript evidence first. Manuscript evidence. And sometimes when you use the word manuscript, that, that intimidates people. Manuscript. Oh, no. Uh, manuscript. That just doesn't sound quite right. Uh, the word manuscript isn't uh, a word that should scare us. It's just a compound word. Manu means hand, like manual labor. We work with our hands. Script means writing. So manuscript is just a, it's a handwritten document. In the days when the Bible was being written, people didn't have Christian bookstores to go buy a Bible. They didn't get to pick the color leather they wanted and which footnotes they wanted and which reference Bible they wanted. There wasn't, I want this size, this size. You have large print. There wasn't, I want the wide margin. It was all handwritten. Years ago, we had a, a student from Missouri... And I don't know where he got the idea, but he wanted to write the Bible out by hand. And so he took a picture of it when it was all done. I think it took him two years. 
the stack of paper that he'd written on. It was a pretty good stack that he'd just written one page, one side only, and uh, it was just pretty impressive how much time it took. I asked him one day, I said, why did, why did you do that? He says, well, my name is Joseph Smith, and sometimes people think that I'm a descendant of the Joseph Smith from the Mormon Church, so I wanted to just be able to say, no, I actually follow the Bible, and so that was his motivation. I said, okay, man, I guess if that's the motivation you needed, and that, that was what worked for him. Manuscript evidence. What is the evidence of the handwritten documents along the way? If somebody tells us that the Bible isn't reliable, or they tell us the Bible isn't trustworthy, then what I want to say in point number one is that to say that, they're going to have to disregard all of the ancient secular writings and their history. Just see the illustrations here. Homer wrote the Iliad, uh, and it says up here 500-year gap. So what are we talking about? Okay, so here's what this, here let me interpret this slide for you. From the time of Homer's lifetime until the oldest manuscript we can find of the Iliad, there's a 500-year gap. Let me say that another way. There's a 500-year leap of faith from our first manuscript of Homer's Iliad to Homer. Does that make sense? And yet you don't read about people saying, well, we don't really know if Homer wrote it. Nobody really questions the credibility of Homer as the writer even though to do so, they have to jump over 500 years with no evidence. That's faith. There's 500-year gap there in this secular writing, and yet most secular historians and those who study literature and, and ancient secular writings are going to say, this is the work of Homer. And they sort of say it dogmatically uh, and emphatically, uh, because if you say something dogmatically and emphatically, it makes it true. Right? <laughs> uh, so Homer's Iliad, written about 900 B.C., our earliest copy is about 400 B.C. There's only, listen very closely, about 650 copies of Homer's Iliad. And there's about a 95% accuracy rate between all of those copies. So everything we know about Homer's Iliad, now if you're a conspiracy theorist, here's your chance. I don't think Homer really wrote that. Here's your one chance. You can go start your new blog and uh, probably have some fun. You probably grab some followers. But most people uh, aren't going to go after that. 650 copies is all we have to make a definitive statement. This was written by Homer, even though we have a 500-year gap. Julius Caesar. Uh, Julius Caesar, we don't often remember him as a writer. We remember him as beware the Ides of March or et tu brute or something like that. Uh, or maybe he was the, the adopted father of Augustus Caesar, who was the t Caesar during a time of Christ's birth. And, but we don't think of him as a writer, but he did write. He wrote a historical books called The Gaelic Wars. It was a historical account of these wars, written about 60 B.C. Earliest copies, 900 A.D. That's a thousand years. From the time we find a copy of it by hand, where somebody has copied it, and, and we know all of the ancient writers and copiers were all left-handed, it's in the Bible somewhere. It's in the Greek, right? Okay. And so they, we find these handwritten copies. But from this copy right here to the time that Julius Caesar lived, it's almost a 1,000 years. There's only 10 copies in existence, and yet everybody credits it with Julius Caesar. In other words, they, in their mind, it's beyond a reasonable doubt to say that Caesar wrote this in 60 B.C., even though we only have 10 copies, and even though there, we have a 1,000 years where we don't have any manuscript evidence, we still believe there's credible enough evidence to say definitively that Julius Caesar wrote it. I just want that to sink in for a moment, because at the end of this, we're going to talk about the evidence for the Bible. 
And you're going to find out that when people argue against the validity of the Bible, the only way they can do so is if there's a bias against it. Not because of the evidence, but in spite of it. Josephus, uh, I had to read Josephus uh, years ago in, in one of my uh, classes on Jewish history. And, and uh, here's what I would often tell people. If you ever get a chance to read Josephus, don't. <laughs> it's like it was a boring as a reading for me. Uh, and, and I still remember the volume. I, I sometimes have nightmares about this volume. It was five volumes in one. It was a red copy. It was in columns. And to put five volumes in one book in columns meant small print. And just like, I didn't think I was ever going to finish that book. And when I finished it, my wife and I, we, we had a big celebration. Uh, so Josephus sometimes gives me nightmares. Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived roughly about the time of Christ, maybe, maybe a decade or two after, but that same time frame. The book that's mentioned here is The Jewish War, written during the first century. Uh, Josephus had a bird's eye view of the Roman invasion of Jerusalem. In fact, he was a right-hand man of the general Titus, who would later become the Roman emperor. And so from his vantage point, he chronicles this Jewish war that ends in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Earliest copies date from the 5th century. It's a 400-year gap. Nine complete copies, and that was not enough lack of evidence to dissuade my teacher from making me read it. Nine manuscripts, a 400-year gap, and yet uh, we regard it as credible witness. So how does the New Testament compare? How does, the, how does the New Testament compare with this evidence? Let's think about it. It was written before 100 A.D., all the New Testament, Earliest fragments date to 125 A.D. Let that sink in. We're not talking about a 400-year gap. We're not talking about a 500-year gap. We're not talking about a 1,000-year gap. We're talking about a 25-year gap. How's the evidence looking? Right? So we've got, this was written by Josephus, but what about that 400 years there? Ah, it's a credible witness. This was written by uh, Caesar, but there's a 1,000 years. Ah, this was written by John the Apostle. How do you know that? You have at least 25 years. Right? It just Something seems biased, doesn't it? Earliest fragments date to 125 A.D. How many manuscripts? Almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And frankly, that doesn't count all of the other languages. You have... Uh, when you start counting Latin, you start counting Ethiopic, you start counting Gothic, you start counting Syriac, you start counting some of these other ancient languages, the number is going to balloon for the 6,000, 19,000. You're going to be somewhere over 25,000 total manuscript evidence. It's pointing to the validity of our text, pointing to the authenticity of our text, pointing to the transmission of our text, and how it never wavered. <laughs> uh, the, the evidence looks pretty good. You say, well, oh, that, that's, that's interesting, but is there anything else we can look at? Like if that's not enough evidence, sure, there's, there's more. Uh, if you start looking at the writings of the church fathers, so now you've got, when you, when you read church history, there's sort of a line of demarcation with church history. They call it the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed was roughly 325 A.D. So any church leader who lives before that, you'll find him in the pre-Nicene era, and then you have the, the Nicene era, then you have the post-Nicene era. And that's sort of how they divide church history. When you read their writings, often when they're writing, they just quote Scripture. They just start writing Scripture in their letters. In fact, uh, one Englishman 
they, they used to have a yearly gathering. He and his friends, they would gather, and they would have some kind of a theological con- conversation. And, and, and one of those conversations, one man said, I wonder if we were to study the church fathers, how much of the New Testament we could recreate. And it was sort of a passing comment, but one man, that just lodged in his mind, and he decided to take him up on that. The next year it came around, they got together again, the group of friends, and he said, you remember that question you asked last year? And the guy honestly didn't remember. And I don't Remember, you said, and it's been bothering me for the last year. I've been going and I've been pouring over all the church fathers and writing out all the verses and the citations and the text, and I've come to an answer. Tell us. Just from the church fathers alone, you would recreate the New Testament all but six verses. All but six verses. Written by hand by church pastors to their members, writing from Paul's letters or John's letters or Peter's letters or Mark or Matthew or whoever. Uh, all but six verses recreated. And I've looked in vain to try to find what six verses they are because I'm, I'm just curious, well, what, what six verses aren't there? Jesus wept. I know, I'm wondering, what, what are the six verses? I don't know, but uh, in the 1800s, when he studied those church fathers, and I don't have enough curiosity to go study the church fathers, I guess I could find the answer if I want to take a year of my life, but I don't, I don't want to know that much. I'll just ask Jesus when I get to heaven. Six verses. 5,700 manuscripts, 6,000 or so Greek manuscripts, 25,000 manuscripts total, 99.5% accuracy. It's just the amount of manuscript evidence is huge. So here's one writer's quote. If all the other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, the patristic quotations would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. So let's think about the significance then of that text, what, what, this evidence. Let's decipher it. What's the significance of this text? Uh, if Caesar's Gaelic Wars is accurate, and if Homer's Iliad is accurate, and Josephus, if it's accurate, and so many more, then for the same historical reasons, we must accept the historicity of the New Testament documents. Think about this for a moment. Revelation was written roughly uh, 90 A.D. or so. The resurrection is roughly 30 A.D., so you've got a period of about 65 years when the entire New Testament is written. 1,600 years for the entire Bible, but 65 years is a snapshot, the window for the New Testament. People who lived during Jesus' lifetime are going to be alive for the bulk of those writings because all but John's writings are written within the first 35 years. So you've got living eyewitnesses collaborate with and to corroborate the stories. Most who are alive during the time of Christ's ministry are alive when the New Testament is written. So if the books are inaccurate, there's just too many witnesses to pass it off as authentic without getting caught in a web of deception. The the manuscript evidence is overwhelming. So critics get faced with a dilemma. If they accept Caesar's Gaelic Wars and Josephus' Jewish Wars and they accept Homer's Iliad and then they neglect the Bible or reject the Bible's claims when it has far more evidence than any other historical book, it just shows a bias. It just shows a bias that I'm just looking for. There's just sometimes you just meet people who just look for a fight. You find some people who just find ways to be disagreeable. I mean, like they think their calling is to play devil's advocate. That's their calling. My spiritual gift is devil's advocate, right? There's just people like that. And there's some people that no matter what evidence you show them, they believe in spite of the evidence. Biblical faith is not opposed to evidence. Faith is based on the evidence. 
And the evidence we have for our New Testament is overwhelming. Now, the Old Testament, frankly, is, is far superior than even what I've just mentioned. It's not even doubted. But the New Testament gets doubted sometimes, so I just spend some time there. The issue is no longer contested by non-Christian scholars, and for good reason. Simply put, if we reject the authenticity of the New Testament on textual grounds, we'd have to reject every ancient work of antiquity and declare null and void every piece of historical information from written sources prior to the beginning of the second millennium. Uh, what that writer is saying is the evidence is in the favor of the New Testament. Let's move secondly, archaeological evidence. Archaeological evidence. Uh, does the spade destroy the Bible's credibility? The Smithsonian uh, Institute was doing some archaeological digs in America. They were looking for the lost treasured cities of the ancient people who were descendants of Nephi, as told by the Book of Mormon. And looking for these treasured cities, they took the Book of Mormon as their guide. And they began to put the shovel in the ground, and every time they put the shovel in the ground, they came up empty. Archaeology does not give credence to the Book of Mormon. In fact, it's a thorn in the side. And so Mormons have to reject, have to retract to, well, one day the evidence will support it. Or, I believe uh, faith doesn't require archaeological evidence. Or, I just have this burning in my bosom. That's my favorite one I hear often. I just have this burning in my bosom. Christians, however, have archaeological evidence that support the Bible. When institutes of archaeological digs in Israel put the shovel in the ground, guess what they find? They find what the Bible describes because the Bible is true, right? Uh, and so archaeology is just uncovering. It's not creating a truth. It's uncovering a truth that's already been recorded for us in Scripture. So we think about archaeological uh, discoveries along those lines. Here's one of them, Belshazzar. Uh, Belshazzar was mentioned uh, in the Bible. We remember him from the book of Daniel. Uh, Belshazzar is the one who's uh, having the, the party the night that the handwriting comes out on the wall, that left hand of Jehovah, right? And he begins to write, meeny, meeny, tickle you farson. You've been found in the balance, found weight in the balance, and found wanting. And the party comes to an end, right? That's a good way to end a party when there's a hand on the wall with no body. And so the party's over, and Christians understand that uh, here comes now the end of the Babylonian Empire, and here comes the Persian Empire. The problem, however, was for many, many years, there was no Belshazzar listed in the records. And so Christians would often be ridiculed for those who believe the Bible by the modernists of the day and, and would say there, there is no King Belshazzar. But in the 1800s, uh, a guy uh, digging in the, in the dirt found evidence. For Belshazzar. In fact, he found evidence that Nabonidus was the regent, that his son Belshazzar was the co-regent, that Nabonidus had upset the people and because of fearing a mutiny had gone to another palace, had left Belshazzar in control of that palace where Daniel was. And if you remember those two pieces, regent, co-regent, you'll remember that when they offered Daniel promotion, they offered him the third highest position in the kingdom. The third highest, not insignificant, there was the regent, there was the co-regent who earned the title king as well, and then Daniel. Archaeology just confirmed it. Now, we didn't need that to believe it. God said it. That settles it, whether we believe it or not. But 
For those who are skeptical, I'm saying there's evidence to support the Bible's claims all along. Because sometimes people say, you can't prove the Bible with the Bible. That's circular reasoning. Really, it's not. Because the Bible is a compilation of 40 different testimonies. It's just put in one place for us. And, and, and consequently, if someone's on trial to see if they're trustworthy, they do get a chance to take the witness stand and plead their case as well. Uh, so it's not circular reasoning, but for those who want additional evidences, archaeology is one of those. Luke is another example of archaeology confirming uh, the authenticity of the scriptures. There's a guy in England, his name was William Ramsey. Agnostic at best, atheist at worst. And it became his mission, his purpose, his passion to prove the, uh, the faults of the Bible, the contradictions of the Bible, the incredulity of the Bible. And so he said, I'm going to pick Luke because Luke gives us so many names and so many places and so much detail. You, you know that if you read Luke. If you read, uh, if you read the Gospel of Mark, you feel like Jesus never slept. And immediately, and anon, and straightway, like, good night, and all of a sudden, and now we're at the crucifixion. Oh, there's the resurrection. Oh, now we're done. Like, that's how quick Mark reads. You read Luke, and it's like, you know, now we go back to Adam. And Adam had a son. Who had a son? Who has a son? And he's going to trace it all the way back to Jesus. Luke gives us all kind of details. You get into chapter 1, you see this list of 80 verses staring at it. Oh, my goodness. Maybe it's just the first chapter. You turn to the second chapter, there's 70-something waiting for you. Like, Luke... You say, well, he only has 24 chapters, so he must be shorter than Matthew that has 28 chapters. No, no, no. When our pastor preached through the book of Luke on Sunday morning, three years, three years through the book of Luke, uh, it was called Journeying with Jesus. And here was, a, after a while, he renamed it, The Journey Begins, year one. The Journey Continues, year two. The Journey Concludes, year three. It just took a while to go through Luke's material. He gives us so much as a doctor with an eye for detail. So Ramsey said, that guy right there is my target. He has given enough rope there and so much evidence, I can find fault with what he's written. At the end, Ramsey became a Christian, and not just a Christian, an apologist, defending the Christian faith. Because every time he stuck the shovel in the ground, Luke was validated over and over and over again. 32 countries, Luke mentions, 54 cities, 9 islands, 100 people by name, 100 places by name. 26 speeches recorded with their, uh, their locations and who's in charge. All of the details you can imagine. And every time archaeology stuck the shovel in the ground, it was validated. Tacitus was a first century uh, Roman historian. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures of a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Uh, Here is a secular historian validating the story of the scriptures. Suetonius, another uh, secretary to Emperor Hadrian in the early 100s. Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, that's how he spelled Christ, he, talking about Claudius, expelled them from the city which is exactly what the book of Acts tells us. Again, Suetonius, after the great fire at Rome, punishments were also inflicted on Christians, a sect professing a new and mischievous religious belief. Uh, and So basically, it, history is recounting for us that Christians did exist. Christ was a real man. He did have followers, and their religion was suspect, and they were persecuted. That's not just something Luke made up when he talked about Saul of Tarsus. Uh, that's something recorded in the annals of 
history. So we have this evidence. Uh, Josephus, I mentioned earlier in his book, Antiquities, talking about James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. Uh, again, in his book, this is the, <clears throat> the Arabic translation, which is not as, not as con- controversial. At this time, there was a wise man named Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. That's not a Christian historian. That's secular history recording the events of our first century New Testament during the time of Christ. Pliny the Younger, uh, a Roman administrator in the 160s, they were in the habit, writing to uh, the emperor uh, about the Christians, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. That was Sunday. And they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. And so as he's writing to the emperor, he says, so do I, they're illegal, so do I persecute them? Do I hunt them down? But he's basically giving the context here that these Christians were real people. They lived in the empire. This is what they followed. They followed the scriptures. Jewish archaeologist Nelson Gulick said, it can be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements made in the Bible. Archaeological evidence. Uh, the historical evidence I just mentioned, it's a little bit different in your notes there, but some of these Tacitus and Suetonius, uh, history does not destroy the Bible's credibility. Uh, Josephus, of course, and then Pliny. Let's talk about the Bible being historically accurate. Historically accurate. Uh, no body of literature, this is a statement by F.F. Bruce, no body of literature, historically accurate, that has been exposed to the stringent analytical study that the four Gospels have sustained for the past 200 years. Scholars today who treat the Gospels as credible historical documents do so in the full light of this analytical study. Bruce said the New Testament has been scrutinized so many times that you can't find anything wrong with it. Well, History sometimes has postulated three objections to why the Bible can't be trusted. Three objections. Number one, uh, Moses was not able to write the first five books because writing wasn't known in his day. That's interesting to me. Hammurabi's Code, 1700 B.C. The Lipit Ishtar Code, 1860 B.C., the laws of Eshuna, 1950 B.C., all in that Babylonian, Mesopotamian region, all dating to roughly the time of Moses. And nobody says, no, 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 writing wasn't invented. No, writing was only not invented when we're talking about the scriptures. History, oh, well, that was a different kind of writing. They could write history. They just couldn't write. No, no, that's a bias. The historical evidence shows that that objection is a biased, uh, falsified account. Writing did exist. Here's another objection. The Hittite Empire didn't even exist. The Bible, remember all those little ites we read about in the Bible? The Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the the somebody bites. All these little ites, right? They're just everywhere in the Bible. 
And the Hittites were one of those. And when you read the Old Testament, they seem to have a, a, a massive empire. But until 1906, no evidence existed for them. In 1906, an archaeological dig confirmed that not only did they exist, they were a vast and prominent civilizations, just as the Bible described them. So that objection was taken away. Objection number three, Jesus wasn't really even a historical person. He was a, he was a myth. He, he wasn't a real person. But when you look at the evidence, not the propaganda, when you look at the evidence... 110 years after the crucifixion, you have approximately 18 non-Christian sources that mention more than 100 facts, beliefs, and teachings from the life of Christ. They include his miracles. They include his resurrections. His resurrection, they include his claim to be God. That's in your non-Christian sources. Uh, so the objections doesn't, the, the propaganda is not enough to cause doubt. The Bible is historically accurate. In fact, we're right when we say that the history is his story, and it's historically accurate. Next, the Bible is scientifically accurate. Now, the Bible isn't a science book, but when the Bible talks about science, it's accurate. Why is that? Because all truth is God's truth. David Piles, when studying the science of the ancient world, one is more apt to be impressed with their ignorance than to admire their accuracy. Is that true? How did our first president die? Bloodletting, right? Uh, Mr. President, you don't look too I don't feel well. We have a cure. Sit here, sir, and uh, begin to let the blood out. How do you feel now, Mr. President? I don't feel any better. Oh, you must have a solid batch of bad blood. Let's, we'll cut more. Uh, Mr. President, how do you feel? I feel weaker. Oh, man, this is worse. Uh, uh, surgeons, more, more. How do you feel now, Mr. President? Mr. President, <laughs> he's dead. <laughs> now watch. Now Leviticus 17 says the life of the flesh is where? Blood. Yeah. So you're not just letting out the blood. You're letting out the life. And so Pio said when you look at the, the, the technology, if it was the science, if you will, of the old ancient world, you're more apt to be impressed with their ignorance and their accuracy, but the Bible offers a definite exception to this rule. The scriptures are replete with statements suggesting scientific knowledge that predates the corresponding discoveries of secular science. And by the way, it used to be that theology was called the queen of the sciences. Given that the Bible writers were not scientists, and given that the scientific information at their disposal was generally misleading... The accuracy of the Bible can only be attributed to the inspiration of God. It's a great statement. What are some of these examples of the Bible being scientifically accurate? How about the round shape of the earth? How about the earth hanging on nothing? In the ancient Hindu religion, they taught that the earth was resting on the back of a turtle, which was resting on the back of a turtle, which was <laughs> resting on the back of another big turtle, one little boy raised his hand and said, I don't understand. Then the teacher said, give it up, son, they're turtles all the way down, right? It just, it just sort of, a, that's, that's what they were taught. But that's not what the Bible taught. And later on, science caught up with the Bible. The stars are innumerable. In the old days, they thought they could count the stars. Uh, the water paths in the sea, the currents in the sea. The Bible talks about this in Psalm 8, verse 1. I told you right now, I'm reading through the book of Leviticus and 
And, and granted, there's some things in Leviticus. I, I like the action stories of the Bible. Here's the wars, and, and here's Joshua walking around the city. And I, I, Leviticus slows down for me. 30 days, God parks them at Mount Sinai and just teaches them. He's, he's gotten Israel out of Egypt, and now he's going to take 30 days to get Egypt out of Israel. And they just stop there. So it's not a lot of activity as much as there's a lot of truth and teaching. And we need it. I get it. But, but it's not the most exciting reading for me uh, compared to some of the other parts of Scripture that I enjoy. But when you read Leviticus, you come across some interesting statements that just make sense to us. It didn't make sense back then. When you read the book of Leviticus, God told them on their weapons to have a paddle. And God told them to take that paddle and dig holes in the ground and put the human waste in the hole and then bury it. We just sort of think that makes sense. But in England, in the Dark Ages, that still hadn't caught up. You read about the story of the bubonic plague and the, the, the hundreds and thousands of people that died because people at that time were throwing their human waste out the street, out the windows in the streets. It was running in the gullies. Uh, and then uh, the rats were uh, becoming infected. They were biting people and people were dying. Simple solution, bury your waste. And that's what the Bible had. It predated scientific discovery. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, they're told not to touch cadavers. Uh, that was something that um, just sort of seemed to me like, you don't have to tell me that. Like, okay, no problem. I, you don't have to put a sign for me that says, do not touch. I, I get it. I, I'm not interested. But a guy by the name of Ignis Simmelweis uh, came up with this idea that uh, maybe this should be investigated. Ignis Simmelweis. You've never heard of him, probably. But he was a physician. He met a near-distraught, a, a distraught near-term pregnant woman who was weeping uncontrollably. He talked to her and said, why, why are you weeping? She said, I've been assigned to the medical students, not the midwives. The death rate from mothers delivered by medical students was one in six. So she realized her chances of survival didn't look good, and she was visibly distraught. Simmelweis sought for a connection. Eventually, he realized that the medical students would often handle cadavers and then come and do internal exams on the mothers. So he instituted a policy, watch this, rocket science, strict hand-washing. <laughs> Within a month, 30 days, the death rate was now 1 in 84 the medical field rejected his studies. That's how strong tradition is. Rejected his studies, rejected his conclusions, committed him to an asylum where he was beaten by guards and died 14 days later. Maybe Moses was on to something when he mentioned not touching dead bodies. The Bible is scientifically accurate. Uh, the Bible is prophetically accurate. Uh, does the Bible pass the test of prophecy? Israel is still a nation. That's number one. <laughs> the fact that Israel refuses to be absorbed into all the nations of the world shows that uh, prophetically the Bible is accurate. The Bible predicts where the Messiah would be born. In what city? Bethlehem. That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That he would be born of a virgin. It names Cyrus by name 150 years before he's born. These prophecies, on and on and on we could go. I give an interesting statistic at, uh, in your notes. I believe these are in your notes. 
the following probabilities are taken from Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, Moody Press, 1963. And basically what he wanted to show was that Jesus just wasn't coincidentally born in the right, happened to be in the right place at the right time, and accidentally fulfilled some ancient predictions that were vague anyway. So by using the modern science of probability, he chose eight prophecies, just eight, the chance that any man might have lived down to this present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in ten to the seventeenth power. I can't get my, num- my, my mind around that number. So he illustrated. I'm a visual guy. I think you'll enjoy the illustration. So in order to help us comprehend this staggering probability, Stoner said, let's take ten to the seventeenth power Silver dollars. Let's mark one of them. Let's lay them out. Ten to the seventeenth power of silver dollars will cover your entire state two feet deep. That's a lot of silver dollars. Your entire state, from border to border, north, south, east, west. Uh, I know just sometimes just traveling on the 10, that's almost 900 miles. It's a long drive on the 10. So just your entire state, we're going to take silver dollars and we're going to cover your entire state two feet deep. We're going to put one coin that's marked. We're going to throw it out in the middle of your state. We're going to blindfold a man. We're going to stir up your entire state of dollars. We're going to turn that one man loose. The chances of him finding that one silver dollar in your state of two feet deep silver dollars is the exact chance that one man would live throughout all of history and fulfill eight prophecies. When you start compounding that with the idea that Jesus fulfilled more than eight prophecies, we can't even really compute the number. It's prophetically accurate. The biblical evidence as well, does the Bible claim to be the Word of God? Yeah, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord. 450 times the Bible uses this expression. It claims to be the Word of God. Forty-six times the Bible says, and God said, or something equivalent. In fact, when you start taking all those equivalent expressions, the Bible claims to be the Word of God over 2,000 times. When I say something once, I might be misunderstood or misinterpreted. If I tell my kids something twice, that I expect them to listen. If I tell them something three times, it's now elevated. Hey, what, what are you doing? Write that. That's really good stuff. Write that down. If I say something 2,000 times, help us if I'm misunderstood after that. 2,000 times makes it very clear what I'm saying. This is the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Peter 1, 21, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. When all of the evidence is considered, we have a reasonable verdict. The Bible is trustworthy. We put the Bible on trial. We look at all of the evidence. Uh, when Homer's on the stand, he gets a pass with far less evidence. When Josephus on the stand, gets a pass with far less evidence. Uh, when Caesar's on the stand, gets a pass with far less evidence. When we put the Bible on the stand and begin to look at all of this evidence, here's what you and I as Christians know. The evidence is overwhelming. This is the Word of God. Since it's accurate in every area where we can test it, and there's no reason to not trust it in the areas where we cannot test it. So we're using a Bible. 
that has been vindicated. Uh, we're using a Bible that is trustworthy. We're using a Bible that you and I can hold on to. And so when we think about it, it's one thing the Bible to say the Bible is trustworthy. It's another thing to say I'm using it. And so uh, we don't want to just study this academically and be able to defend the Bible that's on the shelf. More importantly than having the Bible in our hand is make sure we put it in our heart. Uh, so we don't, we don't want to get we don't want to lose that inside of all the academic evidence.